Microsoft Story Classic, bringing to you recordings of old storybooks. The Thorn and the Nest, Episode 29. Clendenin's heart beat quickly between hope and fear. He was nearing the home of his childhood, and knew not in what state he should find the dear ones there, for he had had no later news of them than that contained in the letter written so many weeks ago, and received the night before he left Chillicothe. He had pressed on as rapidly as circumstances would allow, yet the journey had been long and tedious, made to seem doubly so by his haste and anxiety, for faith was not always strong enough to triumph over doubts and fears. He had passed the previous night, some ten miles west of Glen Forest, and taking an early start, entered the little valley two hours before noon. It was a sweet, bright summer day, trees dressed in their richest robes of green, wild wood flowers scattered in lavish profusion on every side, fields clothed in verdure, the air filled with the music of birds and insects, the bleating of sheep, the lowing of kine, and the fretting, gurgling, and babbling of the mountain stream as it danced and sparkled in the sun. Each familiar scene had charms for Kenneth's eye, yet he lingered not a moment, but urged Romeo to a brisk canter until, as he came in sight of the house, his eye was suddenly caught by the gleam of something white among the trees that bordered the rivulet. He halted, looked more closely at the object, then hastily dismounted, and giving the bridle into Zeb's hands, bade him go on to the house and say that he was with Miss Marianne, and they would both come in presently. Marion had wandered out an hour ago to the spot where she and Littleton had sat together for the last time on the day he bade her a final good-bye. It had been her favorite resort ever since. Thither she would carry book or work or go to sit with folded hands and dream away the time that seemed so long, so very, very long till he would come again. That was all she was doing now, seated on the grass with her arms clasped about Caius's neck, her cheek resting on his head, and her eyes fixed with mournful gaze upon the rippling water at her feet. Kenneth drew near with so noiseless a step that she knew not of his coming, and he had leisure to study her face for several minutes while she was entirely unconscious of his scrutiny. His breast heaved. His lip quivered, and his eyes filled as he gazed, for a sad change had come over the fair young face since last he looked upon it. The bloom was all gone from the cheek and lip, the temple looked sunken, the eyes unnaturally large, and oh, the unfathomable depth of sadness in them. And the slight girlish figure had lost its roundness, the small shapely hands were very thin and white. A bird suddenly swooped down from a tree and skimmed along just above the stream. Caius uttered a short, sharp bark and made a spring toward it, and with a deep sigh, Marion awoke, released him, and turning her eyes in Caius's direction, gave a joyful cry. 
In a moment, she was clasped in his arms, with convulsive sobbing and floods of tears, while he held her close and soothed her with tender words. Oh, Kenneth, how glad I am you have come at last, she said, when she could command her voice. It seems so long, so very long, that we had to wait, and yet you are here sooner than mother thought you could come. I made all the haste I could, dear child, he answered, starting early the morning after the letter reached me with the news that you were not well. What else, you, Marian, dear? I'm not sick, Kenneth, she said, a vivid blush, suddenly suffusing her cheek. But you have grown very thin and pale and do not seem strong, he said, regarding her with tender, sorrowful scrutiny. Something is amiss with you, and surely you will tell me what it is, that I may try to relieve you. She only hid her face on his shoulder with a fresh burst of weeping. A terrible fear oppressed him as he went on questioning her about the symptoms of her disease. She still insisting that she had no pain and was not sick, though she could not deny loss of appetite, weakness, and palpitation of the heart upon slight exertion. At length her reserve gave way before his loving solicitude, for she had been wont to confide her childish joys and sorrows to him in the old days before he went to Ohio, and could tell him now what she could would not breathe to any other creature. Oh, Kenneth, she cried, can't you see that my body is not sick, that it's my heart that is breaking? His very lips grew white. "'What can you mean, my poor, poor child?' he asked huskily, drawing her closer to him with a quick, protecting gesture, as if he would shield her from the threatened danger. "'Oh!' she cried in bitter, despairing tones. "'I thought he loved me. He said it with his eyes and with his tongue. He said I was the sweetest, fairest, dearest girl he ever saw, and he promised to come again in a year at the very farthest.' But more than a year has gone by, never a word from him. His first emotion as he listened to this burst of anguish was utter astonishment. The next, the fear that she was not in her right mind, for he had every reason to suppose that she had never met other than to exchange the merest civilities of life with any man. Her mother had no suspicion of the real cause of her child's suffering. Marian had not confided in her, had never mentioned Littleton's name and the death of the Mrs. Burns. Followed very shortly by the removal to a distance of their maid Kitty, had left no one in the neighborhood who had been cognizant of even that small part of them, but talk between Marion and Littleton, of which woodland was the scene. But the ice only broken, the pan-up waters of the poor child's anguish speedily swept away every barrier of reserve, and the whole sad story was poured out into Kenneth's sympathizing ear. It brought relief from the fear for her reason, but filled his heart with grief and pity for her, mingled with burning indignation against the author of her woe. "'And who is this?' she cried in tones quivering with intense emotion. The answer was so low that he bent his ear almost to, his, to her lips to catch it. "'Littleton!' he exclaimed. "'Lysander Littleton! I know the man, and Marion Martin, poor deceived little sister. He is utterly unworthy of even your friendship. Should be the consorting of the dove with the vulture!' She gave a sharp cry of pain. "'Oh, Kenneth, Kenneth, you can't mean it!' It was hard to see her suffer, but best that she should know the truth at once. 
and a few brief sentences carefully worded to spare her as much as possible, he told of Littleton's approaching marriage. She did not cry out again, but asked in a tone of quiet despair, to whom it cost Kenneth an effort to speak Nell's name, and something in his voice thrilled his listener with an instant consciousness of what she was to him. She lifted her face to his, the wet eyes full of tender pity. You too, Kenneth? My poor dear Kenneth, she said in a low, tremulous tone. Has he wronged you too? Then he is cast out of my heart forever. I cannot love one so base, so unworthy. But with the last words, her head went down upon his shoulder, again with a passionate burst of weeping. A storm of feeling swept over Kenneth as he held her close, not speaking, for he could find no words, but softly smoothing her hair, gently pressing one of the small, thin hands which he had taken in his. He could not forgive Littleton at that moment. He felt that he could crush him underfoot as he would a viper that had stung this precious little sister and poisoned two other lives. His own must be dark and dreary without sweet nail, and what better could hers be, passed in the society of such a man, nay, more in the closest union with him? Alas, alas, hers was the saddest fate of all, and none the less to be pitied because she had in some measure brought it upon herself. In some measure, ah, was he utterly blameless, Kenneth Clendenin? The question came to him with a sharp pang of self-reproach. He had won her affection. His lips had never breathed a syllable of love. Then who was he that he should be so fierce against this other transgressor? The tempest of emotion had spent itself, and Marian lay pale and exhausted in his arms, trembling like a leaf. Very gently he raised her, and bidding her cling around his, about his neck, bore her in those strong arms to the house. Caius running on before to announce their coming. Mrs. Clennon met them in the porch, her face full of anxiety and alarm. Kenneth, what is it? She is wearied out now, mother, but will be better soon. Let me lay her in her bed. She had already fallen into the sleep of utter exhaustion. He placed her comfortably on the bed, while the mother drew down the blinds, and Caius stretched himself on the floor by her side. Kenneth, my dear boy, oh, what a comfort to have you here again whispered Mrs. Clendenin as they clasped each other in a long embrace. Leaving Caius to watch the slumbers of their dear one, they withdrew to the sitting room. What do you think of her? There was another, an unspoken question in the mother's pleading anxious eyes. Caius's answer to it was, Let your poor heart be at rest, mother. It is not that. A cloud of care, of deep and sore anxiety, lifted from her brow, and she wept tears of joy and thankfulness. Anything but that, she sighed. Any other burden seems light in comparison with that. But, Kenneth, the child is certainly ill. Have you discovered the cause of her malady? Yes, he said, and have brought her a cure which, though it must be painful at first, will, I doubt not, prove effectual in the end. Then he repeated Marian's story, having won her consent that he should do so, and added his own knowledge of Littleton. The mother's surprise was not less than his had been, and her tears fell fast over the sorrows of her sweet and gentle child. 
I take blame to myself for leaving her alone, she said, and yet it was what seemed best at the time. I would not have you do so, mother dear, he said, gazing tenderly into the patient yet troubled face, whereon sorrow and care had left their deep and lasting traces. No blame rightfully belongs to you. She gave him one earnest look, then dropping her eyes, seemed lost in thought for several minutes. Yes, she said at length, I think you are right, and she has passed this trying ordeal safely. Yes, clasping her hands in her lap and lifting her eyes to heaven, I thank thee, O oh, my father, for that, she murmured in tones so low that the words scarcely reached Kenneth's ear. He stood looking down upon her with loving, compassionate eyes. Ah, if it were but in his power to remove every thorn from her path. That might not be, but her face had resumed its wanted expression of sweet and calm submission. She glanced up at him, her eyes full of affectionate pride. You have told me nothing yet of yourself, Kenneth. How fares it with you, my boy? Sit down here by my side and open all your heart to me as you used to do. I see you have something to tell, she added, watching the changes of his countenance as he took the offered chair. Something of joy and something of sorrow. Yes, mother, I have learned that long-sought secret, and it brings me both gladness and grief, he answered with emotion. You have found her, she asked, in almost breathless, half-credulous astonishment. Yes, mother, Uma Clark, and wait one moment, she faltered, pressing her hand to her heart. He knelt at her side and threw an arm about her. She laid her head on his shoulder, heaving a gentle sigh. Now, she whispered, tell me all. Oh, that terrible, terrible day, I can never recall it, without a shudder. His story did not go back to the scenes of that dreadful day on which he first saw the light. He merely gave a brief account of his interview with Reuma Clark, confirming himself chiefly to her explanation of the mark which proved his identity, and her assertion that she had looked for it and seen it at the time of his birth. Mrs. Clinton raised her head, showing a face radiant with joy and thankfulness. Oh, my dear boy, what glad news for you, what a burden removed. And yet, ah, oh, I am not the happy mother of such a son, and her eyes filled with tears. No, that is the bitter drop in the cup, sweet mother, for I must still call you so unless you forbid it. And thank God we are of the same blood. Yes, yes, my own mother's child by birth, mine own by adoption. We are very near and dear to one another, she whispered, clinging to him in a close and tender embrace. For a moment there was utter silence between them. Then she spoke musingly, as if half talking to him, half thinking aloud. I have often wondered over that mark, but could not find no clue to it, for my mother never mentioned the occurrence to me, and I knew nothing of the mark upon Clark's arm. Ah, had I known how much of anxiety and mental, mental suffering might have been spared us both. Yes, he asserted with almost a groan, thinking of his lost love. She saw the anguish in his face, and with tender questioning at length drew the whole story from him. Do not despair, she said when he had finished. I think the man has told you a falsehood. I understand woman's nature better than you can, and such a girl as you have described would never give herself to such a man. And now the seal is taken from your lips, and you may declare your love and sue for hers in return. Ah, oh, my dear boy, I trust happy days are in store for you, even on this side of Jordan. 
She looked into his eyes with hers so full of loving pride and tender sympathy and joyful anticipation that hope revived in his desponding heart. Thank you for listening to another episode of Baker Soft Story Classic.